Aviation Podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode 124, ATC handoffs, and some special guests coming up in this episode of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Sean Moody, Eric Crump, Rick Felty, and Carl Valeri. Well, hello, folks. This is Carl Valeri. I have some really cool guests with us tonight. This is going to be a, a really fun episode of the Stuck My Gavcast. We have a, a really interesting topic, and we have some some really interesting guests from throughout the country. But first, our normal co-host. Let me introduce you to them. It's going to be myself, of course, Carl Valeri, Tom Frick, Sean Moody, Rick Felty, Victoria Nubel. Welcome to the podcast. Hey. Hey, hey, hey. Hello, hello. You know that it's uh, it's been so much fun. We've been getting a lot of feedback. I mentioned we were going to do some some emails uh, this week, and I'm you know what we got too much to talk about. Gosh, uh, but I appreciate the feedback. Uh, we've gotten some really positive feedback. Keep doing that. Send us uh, feedback on contact at Stuck Mike Avcast, and also go to the Facebook page. Send us emails. There's been some some really good stuff coming in and questions about. Uh, the different things that we're doing. And, of course, it's all about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. And the big part is learning to fly. We have a really cool topic, special guest. I'll introduce that special guest in a moment. Let's do the pre-flight. But before we do that, I have remotely from up north in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, Larry Overstreet. Larry, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Carl and company. How are you doing? I am doing great. And you know, Larry texted me, said, I have somebody else special here with me. I hear people in the background. Who else is joining us this evening? So uh, the background noise is coming from uh, the world-famous Artie and Ed's drive-in. Uh, you're just off the uh, <laughs> uh, approach end of runway 927, the 27 side. Um, and uh, their, their tagline is a blast from the past. You can come here and get a, uh, a black cow or an orange cow, which is amazing. Um, or any of the other, you know, kind of drive-in uh, uh, food, but it's it's definitely an Oshkosh EAA staple. S- serve to you on wheels. Serve to you on wheels with roller skates and everything. And uh, that voice uh, next to me here is Pilot Jim G, Jim Goldman. Hey, <laughs> folks. Hi, Carl. Hi, Victoria. Hi, Rick. Hi, everybody. Everybody I just missed. It's so amazing to be out here at Oshkosh uh, two weeks before the show opens, um, helping Larry set up Camp Bacon. I was going to ask you guys to kind of frame because, you know, when are we recording this? And so so you just said it two weeks. You guys are there. We're as we record this tonight. It's two weeks ahead of the show. And this is your normal routine, Larry, to to come and set up. Yeah. uh, So I I typically come out here, you know, a week and a half, two weeks ahead of time and stake out uh, a bunch of campsites for a number of us who camp together. Uh, in a place that we call Camp Bacon. Um, the name has stuck around for years, uh, but um, there are a lot of people from across the United States, Canada, and as far away as New Zealand. Wow. Can last year, we had, uh, last year, I think we had about 55 people total uh, that camped uh, together as a group. Wow. I, I don't really, I don't know what the, what the mechanics of all that are and the rules. How early can one camp there for Osh? The interesting thing is you can come here at the end of June, and there are folks who will live here for the entire month of July. They're usually volunteers helping to set up, but some of them are just folks who like to get here early and hang out in the campground. What we think of as campground, big open space full of tents and RVs, right now is mostly an open field with a few RVs in it. Right. So it's, it's, it's quite a different scene. But yeah, they're here from the end of June, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And um, people come, you know, like groups, a lot of people are here individually, families, individuals, whatever, couples. Um, 
but there are a lot of groups that come to Oshkosh and camp out here as well. Uh, maybe EAA chapters or, you know, groups of friends or, or whatever. Uh, maybe people who are building the same kind of airplane and they kind of all hang out together in the campgrounds. Uh, it's a great place to meet new people and socialize in the evening after a you know, long day of running around at the air show. And um, we're just, uh, I'm just glad to be a part of it. Larry, when, you know, when you're up there during the actual Oshkosh week, it's it's one thing to meet all these fellow pilots and, and aviation enthusiasts and come away with those relationships, but it must be a totally different vibe in these weeks leading up to it. I mean, what kind of relationships are you able to foster then? Um, like Jim said, there are a lot of volunteers around. And uh, here at uh, you know Camp Bacon, where, where I camp, Jim is here tonight. Um, and in years past, we've had other uh, folks who come in uh, early to be part of it. You know, I'll, I'll still be working my normal day job remotely for you know, most of the next week. Uh, the Wi-Fi is actually pretty good before everybody gets here <laughs> and then it gets congested. Uh, you know, the end of next week, it'll be it'll be uh, pretty, uh, pretty difficult to get a good connection. Um, so uh, but my job just my, my job lets me work remotely uh, sometimes. And uh, so I take advantage of that and come on up and set up camp. And um, it, it's funny, you meet people who. Uh, are setting up. You meet volunteers. You meet people who might just be camping, a, you know, a few spaces over from you. Um, so all kinds of uh, people. Uh, there are some folks that we camped near last year uh, who are at the Packer Airport. Uh, e, I'm sorry, five E nine, five Echo nine uh, in Ohio, and uh, they had airplane, airplane noise. Airplane noise. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's beautiful. On approach to uh, two seven, short final. Anyway. Um, and uh, from the Packer Airport, and they've got a grand champion steerman from a couple of years ago. It's a gorgeous airplane. So we got a chance to sit down and, you know, meet them and uh, find out what they're doing and the instruction that they're giving at their airport and that kind of thing. So all kinds of really interesting folks. Uh, everybody's, you know, always willing to uh, talk and share their stories and share their aviation experience. Well, very cool. You know, I, I know Jim G's in there. And uh, tell Jim, or, or Jim, I, I want you to know I really I miss you from, from uh, Sun and Fun, and I'm hoping to make it out there. Did you make the trek by airplane, car? How did you get there? Uh, today I just came out on the airline, on an airliner, quick trip out just to help Larry set up and stake out my little piece of heaven. And uh, I'm actually going to head back home for a few days, got some work to do, and then I'll be driving back out here this year. Oh, uh, gosh. You know, I'm, I'm actually hoping to fly in this year. I've never been. If you fly in GA, um, like any good pilot, you should also always have an alternate plan. Because if you show up with your tent and sleeping bag and camping gear and no reservations anyplace, and something happens, you better have an alternate. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I definitely will have an alternate. Actually, I may be part of a demonstration uh, at Oshkosh, so I, we're not so sure Very if cool. we're going we're gonna to be doing a, a parking demo or if it's going to be a, a low pass. We're not quite sure yet. So, would, th- uh, would that be through Polkstead? Um, uh, I can't spoil it right now. Okay. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it was kind of associated with a, maybe a, a post I put on my Facebook page, on my personal page. So uh, it definitely is in the works right now, and it, it's going to be exciting if we can do it. Uh, we'll try to do some uh, some cool maneuvers too. So we'll we'll see what happens depending on the type of airplane we're allowed to bring out there. So a lot All of right. fun, a lot of fun, guys. You know, I really I really appreciate you doing this and coming on to the podcast. Uh, can Jim G hang out for a little while and stay the whole episode with you, Larry? I have to. I'm Larry's ride back to the campsite. Oh, perfect, <laughs> perfect. Hi, well, great. Jim. Well, uh, I, you know, did did Jim bring a uh, pick of the week? I'm just kidding, Jim. You don't have to have pick of the week. <laughs> uh, we'll and we'll get to that later. But you guys, uh, if you can hang around, we'd really appreciate it. We do have a a special guest here with us today, and I, I kind of want to. We have him in the in the wings here, hanging on, but. Uh, you know, just stand by. You can go back to having sipping your uh, what do they? You have Lion Kugels up there. Diet Coke. Diet Coke, and uh, no Jeremiah weed or Lion Kugels for this evening. So they're Not responsible. Not that that's good. That's good. You don't want to miss anything. That's for sure. Uh, also, Larry, you're going to have some pictures. Oh, you have actually. Wait a minute. You have posted pictures, and there's another. Uh, there's a Facebook page out there. Uh, which is Camp Bacon. Where can they find that Camp Bacon Facebook yeah, that's page? Yeah, that's out on Facebook. Just search for it. Okay, cool. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. I appreciate you guys coming on and, and talking a little bit to us. Now entering cruise flight. 
we, uh, we also are going to move on to our next topic, and that is going to be with our special guest. So please hang on, and, and we're going to, you know, any questions we can shoot to him, it'd be great. First of all, you heard from him last episode. Uh, this is somebody that actually has been involved uh, with aviation for quite some time. He's uh, a friend, uh, also somebody who's uh, been involved in some incredible projects as of late, one of them being, of course, his uh, his airplane re- uh, restoration, and uh, that's Chris Pazala. Chris, welcome to the podcast. How you doing? Good, Carl. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on on such a short notice. Uh, the topic we're going to discuss this evening is uh, is something that's near and dear to my heart because a lot of folks don't understand this. And uh, I'll lead it off, but uh, of course, Chris is going to interject as as I discuss this. Chris, uh, obviously, he is the author of uh, Advanced Guide to Holding Patterns. And by the way, we put together a video based on that, and that is uh, the Advanced Holding Patterns video. If you go to expertaviator.com slash holding, you can actually watch the first one for free. Really good stuff. It's a great review, like we said in the last episode. Oh, and by the way, I forgot to mention, uh, we do have a 50% discount for the summer. So if you want to purchase that, uh, just put in the coupon code SUMMER. As a matter of fact, I put it on the website. So it's 50% off that video uh, if you purchase that. And of course, you, you get access to that uh, as a member of the website at Expert Aviator for, for life, And uh, as long as you purchase that video. Uh, it's actually uh, that plus many other FA safety seminars that he does are really Really good information. So, uh, fasafety.gov. If you're in Tampa Bay area, if you're in, uh, let's see, the Polk State area, Polk State College, or actually Lakeland area, uh, Central Florida, and throughout Florida, you'll probably hear uh, Chris talk about many different topics, VFR and IFR. Actually, this topic that we're going to talk about this evening, air traffic control handoff procedures, is an article he wrote before uh, a few years ago, I think. And uh, it's it's really interesting because I, I know at work and I know when I'm flying IFR with students, a lot of people don't really understand uh, this whole quote-unquote procedure of handoff, you know, what's happening behind the scenes. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. But, but Chris, I, I, my first question is this. In your experience, uh, when you're discussing handoffs uh, with people, with students and friends, uh, do you think they have – have a basic knowledge or do you think they have a more in-depth knowledge of that handoff procedure? Uh, Carl, I think it's uh, pretty basic. It's something that uh, controllers, of course, talk about all the time in their training, uh, some of which I've actually uh, been a part of. But uh, as far as pilots, we don't really see the other side. And so we neglect to really discuss um, how that works and how the uh, controllers are going to be interacting, which makes it harder for us to really know what's going on. Okay, so, so this this okay. Let's go back to air traffic control handoff procedures. First of all, Chris, just describe what's actually a handoff. I mean, what what do we mean by that? It's uh, certainly. I I think a lot of pilots have not heard this term. Uh, before I go even to handoffs, um, I should mention. I think pilots might be familiar with this that controllers have certain sections of airspace uh, delineated both uh, geographically, uh, as far as over the ground, and also vertically. They have certain altitude blocks. And uh, a handoff is when a controller takes an aircraft from his airspace and places it into the airspace of the next controller. So he's transferring that aircraft control and all into that next sector. Interesting. Interesting. So now uh, this is what we talk about flight information regions or fur boundaries, et cetera. Uh, that can also be included both uh, you know, domestically and internationally. There's all these different regions. The blocks of airspace are kind of interesting how they chunk them together. It it almost when I looked at a a, a little diagram of it, it almost didn't make sense to me. It uh, kind of had that class Bravo airspace, but you know, really wild <laughs> depiction of class Bravo airspace. Uh, is that what is the what is the reasoning behind that? Do you know how they actually chunk them off, or is it is it volume or or something like that? Volume and and also the direction of approaches. Uh, something I should point out, though, is that what we as pilots see as airspace is different from what the controllers see. So in our case, we look at a sectional chart, and here's your class Bravo, your class Charlie, your class Delta. The controllers don't see that. The controllers actually have everything divided up all the way across the map, except for uncontrolled airspace, of course. And that uh, and so they don't really care whether you're inside the Charlie or whether you're just beyond it because that's still within their airspace. So it's a very different viewpoint for a controller. 
So, Chris, you know, we're, we're talking IFR most of the time, but does this impact VFR pilots? It does, absolutely, because uh, as VFR pilots, we're going to be using flight following, and it's going to be the same sectors and the same procedures that move us from one controller in one sector to the next. Interesting, interesting. Well, I tell you what, let's let's get started on on the actual handoff procedures. We're we're transferring control from one sector to the next, and and uh, this is something they're doing internally. And like you said, I think that was an important point. Where we repeat that is the fact that you know their their depiction of the airspace is a lot different than ours. Uh, so they have their their own depiction of the airspace and how it's split up. So let's talk about that, the, the air traffic control handoff procedures. I'll start off with, a, with number one, uh, and that's actually where they, they call the transfer of radar identification, when they actually transfer radar identification. So what happens is this, is as the aircraft nears the boundary or the next sector, the controller, the person controlling the aircraft, begins the radar handoff. So normally this will begin about three minutes before that boundary. Uh, but also, this this really varies widely uh, with different controller preferences and in different boundaries. Uh, I know from my experience, uh, I've been asked to contact three prior in certain boundaries, and also ten prior and five prior, and and that's all within one flight. Especially as you're flying internationally, but uh, also within the U.S., it's the same thing. Uh, but it's also when they're when they're transferring this radar identification, uh, you you wonder how it's done, and that's actually referred to as flashing at the next sector. You know, Chris, kind of explain that whole flashing term. Why, where did that come from? Uh, sure. Well, that's actually relatively new. Uh, air traffic control before radar, a controller would pick up the phone and, and tell the next controller, hey, I have a plane coming your way. And even after radar was invented, it was still like that for quite some time. Now what happens is the controller that is giving up the aircraft, is transferring that aircraft, will press a button and the next controller will see that airplane flashing on his screen. Each controller sees a little more than their sector. They see a little bit around the edges. And he'll see that aircraft flashing. The, the controller that is accepting the handoff, accepting that airplane, will click on the screen and actually accept the aircraft. And when the plane stops flashing, the first controller knows it's okay to let that airplane pass into the next sector. Interesting. So that's, that's how it starts. It's actually a physical flashing uh, on their scope. It is. In most cases with the modern system, it'll be a physical flashing. Mm -hmm. And that'll occur before the plane reaches that boundary because uh, just like you don't park your car in your neighbor's yard without asking, you also don't put your airplane into somebody else's airspace without asking. So this has to start happening uh, a number of miles from the boundary. Well, unfortunately, it happens often. We sometimes bump into airspace we shouldn't. So uh, we hope that doesn't happen. We are, are contacted soon enough so that we can be handed off. This doesn't always work, but uh, it normally, uh, especially in busy airspace, it's, it's normally done very well expeditiously, but every so often they drop the ball and it's like, oh boy, yeah, you're supposed to be talking to so-and-so. And, -so. and uh, they may have taken that handoff, maybe not. But let's talk about the next process. Okay, so we have that transfer of the radar ID. Okay, We have the radar identification transfer to the next controller. So what this next step in this process is uh, actually this transfer of communications. You have the identification, now we have communications. So that receiving controller actually accepts that handoff from the previous step, what we talked about, the transfer of radar ID, and then communications are transferred. Well, you know how that happens, and we've heard it a million times. The controller says, contact Miami Center on 123-decimal-niner, and then you move over to the next controller. Uh, this is actually, <laughs> what's interesting is, uh, you know, I, I know you, you put this in jokingly in the notes, is that <laughs> this is when, when the pilots actually ignore the controllers and, and ask ATC to repeat themselves multiple times. Hopefully that doesn't happen uh, too often, but uh, depending on the morning, it, it seems like it depends on the day. If it's early in the morning, if everybody's, uh, you know, had their coffee, usually they'll hear it, but sometimes you're right. Boy, Chris, they, they do forget to, to contact them, don't they? Well, they do, and actually that's a funny part there because um, I worked with a controller who's working at an actual center to make up this um, article, and he put that in thinking I would see it and laugh and take it back out, and I didn't see it until a couple hours ago. So um, <laughs> that was actually an internal joke that wasn't, wasn't meant to go into the document, but it does make the point um, that well, it, it's a lot of work for a controller when you, you miss that handoff because the controller has to keep calling you until he finally can get you over to that next controller. 
Well, and, and let's talk about that right now, too, is that sometimes you hear people missing the handoff uh, and missing the contact of the next controller, uh, and you, you'll hear repeated attempts, and they usually get a little bit angry. So this is this, I hear this almost every day when I'm out there flying in an IFR environment. But what happens next after multiple calls, you, you hear the controller take this big sigh, and they say, okay. And then the next thing you hear, if you're monitoring 121.5, is uh, aircraft uh, 123 X-ray Alpha. This is Miami Center on 121.5. Contact Atlanta Center on, or Jacksonville Center would be in this case, Jacksonville Center on, and they'll, they'll start repeating the, the frequency to you. So that is a point that I like to make, especially during the handoff, is when you're listening in on air traffic control and you hear nothing, one of the best things to do is to turn up 121.5 on, on radio number two. I think that's really important because a lot of times we miss those hands off and, and we'll hear the handoff on 121.5. Uh, honestly, I've made that mistake in the past and uh, it did save my bacon. Uh, talking about Camp Bacon. Uh, th- so I really, I really, really stress that. Why do we listen to 121.5? That's one of the reasons right there is uh, sometimes we miss calls. So if it's quiet, you may have missed one. So anyway, they, they don't really, we don't really uh, ignore the controllers as sometimes we're doing something else. Uh, sometimes we have the volume turned down accidentally. So uh, I'm going to stick up for the pilots in this situation and say uh, it, it happens. And they miss our calls too, but so vice versa. That's why everybody has to listen up, and that's why we listen to multiple frequencies at the same time. So now we, this is, we've gotten the identification. we got the radar identification transferred. And now the controller has told us to contact the next controller on a specific frequency. You go over to that frequency, uh, Chris, and then what, what actually happens next uh, when they go to that next frequency? Well, the aircraft has been approved uh, from the accepting controller to now enter that airspace. And the aircraft, by calling that next controller, is now in touch with them. But that's really all that's happened. That aircraft should, at this point in time, still be in the first controller's airspace for just a little bit longer. It hasn't fully transferred over. And so now that new controller is waiting for the plane to come into his airspace fully so he can start directing the aircraft where he needs it to go. Okay, so now the the actual transfer of control happens, and this is uh, when the physical boundary is crossed by the aircraft, correct? That's correct. Once it crosses the boundary, now that new controller can send that aircraft wherever he needs to send it within his airspace. Interesting. So, um, boy, now I'm a little confused. Here I am. I'm not in that next airspace, which I don't know because I don't have their charts in front of me possibly. Uh, Now what do I do? I mean, I want to turn right now, and I'm still in the last person's airspace, but I'm talking to the next controller. Well, that's actually very common. Uh, You'll see in many cases where there's a weather deviation or some other reason the aircraft wants to make a turn, and you have just a few minutes there where... The first controller is giving you up, and a new one can't adjust you. So what happens is you call the controller who's accepted you, the new controller. He's going to actually pick up a phone and call back the old controller, unless he's sitting next to him. And he's going to ask for permission to adjust your flight path. So if you need to turn left for weather, that new controller will actually call the old one and say, hey, the plane you just gave me wants to make a left turn. Is that okay? And in most cases, the first controller will say, sure, go ahead and he'll let you make that turn. But it requires this extra level of coordination. It requires this controller who's talking to 15 airplanes to now pick up a phone and talk to a controller who's also got 15 airplanes. So the question now is, how do we avoid that so we aren't stressing out the controllers? And the trick to that is to do it earlier on. Because if we had done the, if we had called the controller, our old controller, 10 minutes ago and said, hey, there's something ahead we might want to go around, he's got time to plan and he's got time to let that next controller know before we get into this situation. So is there, I'm kind of trying to get a, a picture within the control room. Are these people next to each other in most cases, or are they far away? Uh, 50-50. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the sectors that are related will be near each other. And um, last year I was fortunate enough to tour the Albuquerque facility. And it, it's large. It's the size of a small warehouse with many, many different um, sections or areas. And each one controls a certain uh, airspace. So you may from three controllers with adjoining computers, but at some point you're going to cross to a section that's across the room or down the hall or to another facility. You may cross from Albuquerque Center to, say, Denver Center. 
And in those cases, they won't be next to each other. So they'll have to actually call them on a, some type of a phone line or uh, interconnect line. So how about, and, and to drive this home, if I'm with Jacksonville Center, say, and then I'm handed off to the next person that's Jacksonville Center, I still have to comply with the last person's instructions until I'm handed off, correct? I can't start deviating unless they make that, that connection somehow, either on a phone call or, or throwing a paper airplane at the guy next to him. Correct. And unless there is a, an emergency, something where you say, well, I've just, I have to do this, it's an emergency, not just it's going to be bumpy. Otherwise, yes, we, we need to stay uh, on the previous instructions until we get new ones. Interesting, interesting. So uh, to drive that home, another just an aside on that, because some of the folks that are flying, especially on the borders and the different countries, especially now with with Cuba opening up and and people flying down to you know straight across to say Jamaica, out to the Bahamas, Dominican, etc., and uh, and maybe through to Mexico. One of the things that's interesting about these handoffs, and, uh, and, and this happens every day, I fly over Cuba just about once a week, is the fact that when we talk to that next controller and we're handed off, like you said, we're you know, maybe a few minutes prior to that border of their airspace. And uh, in that case, you many times will, or you will have the depiction of the airspace because it's a, a separate country, that fur boundary, you actually can can coordinate yourself. This is, this is really interesting. You can actually, uh, when you're flying into different international airspace, which hopefully people will start doing down to like Cube, et cetera, you actually can coordinate. Like Miami Center will say, well, we can't t- let you turn left. You know, call Cuba, or actually Havana usually, call Havana on, you know, one, two, three, decimal two, five, and ask them for the turn as long as you get approval and then call me back. And so you ask Havana, say, hey, Havana, you know, I'd like to turn left to heading of uh, 150 to, I'm still with Miami, can I have that turn now? And they're like, uh, oh, yep, you're cleared, go ahead and take that left, that's fine. As a matter of fact, uh, things have really changed, especially in the past six months, uh, things have really loosened up, so they, they've been uh, allowing us to do things well in advance. Uh, as a matter of fact, even even handoffs have become more like just handoffs within the U.S. But but remember that you can actually do some of that controlling yourself uh, and actually ask the next controller. And I've actually done that in the U.S. too, where uh, the con- the controller say, "Hey, contact them." It's not it, it's very odd that that happens, but every so often that, that does happen where. They'll tell you, go on another frequency, ask the next controller. If they approve it, I'll approve it. And you come back and say, hey, they approved it, and you're, you're on your way. So uh, you have to make sure you do that, though. It's more important, especially with uh, going through an international boundaries, because you, uh, you really have to make sure that you're allowed into that airspace. Otherwise, they'll turn you around, and, uh, and they could do that. They could say, forget it. You know, you're, you're, going, you're going backwards. Interesting, though, that that we do have that limbo stage. And that's where that's the point where people, I think, don't understand is that we are in that limbo between the part of transfer of control and also transfer of radar identification. There's a lot of steps in between there. The, uh, what's interesting that, that I found is, and, and I'm sure you've had this experience, <laughs> we, we like to joke. We're like, well, they're going to get a donut. Is, is, you know, when you call them and they say, you know, stand by, I'm coordinating. Uh, we we always laugh. That's that's the time. They're not they're not doing that. They're actually going out to get a Coca Cola or something like that but, during that handoff period. But it but in reality, from your experience and your visits to these centers, you know that that time frame from the person saying to you, "Hey, listen, I need ten degrees or twenty degrees left for some weather," and then the controller says, "Hey, I'm coordinating." Uh, they are they're actually pretty darn busy, aren't they? They're very busy. Um, they've got one headset, and they're just switching from frequency to frequency. As a matter of fact, they're so busy that at very busy times, one controller is actually two controllers, one who's talking on the radio, and the other one is doing all the data entry and checking things on the screen. Interesting. So it's two people working as a team. Uh, and also, it requires separate certification for those two positions. Uh, most controllers get both certifications, but it's uh, it's an interesting and much more intricate process to become certified as a controller than it say, a pilot. Well, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. There's two different certifications for that. You know, they, uh, what, what's also interesting is the fact that just the opposite is true, uh, meaning that if you have, uh, you, you're talking to a controller, and you ever get this where he's or she's talking to somebody and you don't hear them respond back, 
they're actually working like multiple frequencies. And uh, and you're like, is something going on? What, what's going on with this? Why am I doing something wrong, et cetera? Uh, and <laughs> what's interesting there is that you actually sometimes will get handed off and it'll be the same person you're talking to on a different frequency. I've had that, actually. I had uh, one very amusing night where I uh, departed, uh, speaking of, of small aircraft and big airports, I was departing Orlando International with a GA aircraft, uh, the big airport. And it was about 1 o'clock in the morning, and I, so I get the ATIS. Okay. I call for clearance. Same voice that's on the ATIS. Then I call the ground controller. Same guy. I'm like, all right, he's got a couple positions. Then I call the tower for takeoff. Same guy. I'm like, wow, he's really busy. Takes off. He tells me to contact departure. You see this coming. <laughs> Same person. <laughs> they had one person running every frequency for the entire Orlando International Airport at 1.30 in the morning. Uh, because it's just not that busy. So they combine positions. And that's one of the reasons you'll see them on multiple frequencies or they're talking to planes that you can't hear is because at night, big centers will also merge uh, their airspace. And a controller may control three or four times the airspace that he normally does during the day. Interesting you said that because a lot of times you'll hear the controllers say, stand by, we're just opening up another sector. Uh, stand by, we're just uh, you know, opening another uh, frequency. And, uh, and then, then you start hearing people chatter, uh, you know, running their mouth and starting going and going and going because things are starting to pick up. You see that, like you said, in the middle of the night, it's not that busy. But in the mornings, once they start that morning rush, it gets crazy. And then, you know, like you said, they have multiple people on that frequency and at that station. What what is what I'd like to know, and I'm wondering if anybody's ever done the study. Is how do they determine that? I mean, I, I'm sure they have records of the different, you know, frequencies and and when they get the most requests. But how do they determine how many people they need for each of the shifts? Uh, it, it's quite interesting. They um they actually do keep track of of history as far as how much, and then they look at the individual day as well to see are we on track today? Are we over? And they have big screens and big boards to keep track of the sectors, and they're color coded depending on. The amount of work, uh, or the amount of aircrafts, or the amount of work the controllers have, and so that'll actually determine whether they decide to call in extra controllers that day or adjust the shift times as necessary. Interesting. You know, I I really sometimes get frustrated. You know, when there's one person working a frequency, and you're like, come on, get another person on there. Uh, but it is it is rather comical when you when you hear the same controller take you from approach down to the final controller down to the tower down to the ground control and they're also working clearance at this huge piece of airspace especially in Tampa that happens a lot but they you know one of the thing that that I, I think we need to stress is that this is not just for IFR we're talking VFR these handoffs we're getting VFR flight following uh, but especially in in the areas like like Florida, where we have you know sun and fun, and and also you know the Canadian borders, one of the things that we have as a as an, a demarcation on our charts that we're looking at is uh, this air defense identification zone. Um, now, what I'm interested in is you know what we need to tell people as far as what they need to do when they're approaching this. Can you expand on that? Oh, certainly. Well, the air defense identification zone, it's, it's basically an imaginary, or I shouldn't say imaginary, it's a real border for the U.S., but it's an airborne border as opposed to, say, you know, an entry point on the ground. It's where we're looking at aircraft, and NORAD is looking at aircraft coming in. So the main thing that we need entering the United States is to make sure that they know who we are. And the traditional ways to do this are either to file an instrument flight plan, which handles all the process, or... Uh, defense VFR, DVFR, you'll see on the old written flight plan charts is another way to do it. In more recent years, over the last 15, 20 years, the Customs Department has also added some additional requirements separate from the FAA's requirements. So before you fly international, you'll want to make sure that you're complying not only with the FAA's requirements, but also the Customs Department. Interesting. Now, one of the things that I've, I haven't... Uh, really done much of is the defense VFR flight plans. Do we uh, we file that while we're, say, coming in from the example I want to use is Bahamas to the U.S.? Exactly. That's where you would want to use that is uh, between those locations. And uh, as far as the Bahamas go, I think I would call stateside and file that just to make sure that the U.S. has the flight plan. And uh, with the, the other thing we want to do, of course, is we want to call the controllers coming in, whether we're IFR or VFR, Let's call, and if we're VFR, let's get flight following because that's going to get us a transponder code and it's going to let the air traffic control know who we are. 
Interesting. And they're going to actually stop us when we get on the ground uh, if if we haven't done things properly. I've heard of that happening. You know, if you uh, if there's any suspicion, they'll they'll come up and talk to you. Uh, so really, coming across a border is is a, a big deal in an airplane. And uh, and make sure that you have this properly done. You filed your defense VFR or a better idea, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, is why don't you get your instrument rating? Even if you fly VFR all the time, and I do it all the time, I fly, file IFR so I, I don't worry about all the airspace restrictions as much. Uh, they usually will take me around, won't they? They will. Uh, that's the great thing about flying IFR is that they will handle special use airspace and it meets all the requirements to enter through the ADIS. So um, IFR is, is really a great way to get around. Actually, it's the only way I go anywhere now. <laughs> Yes, it makes it a lot easier. But one thing, though, uh, I've noticed is every so often they'll say, well, and, and it adds a lot of time to my flight. They'll say, well, this MOA is hot. We ha- you have to go military operations area is hot. You need to uh, take a heading of this and, you know, and uh, be prepared to write down a clearance. And uh, are you ready to copy and start copying another clearance? Uh, why is it that they didn't know that when I filed my flight plan? Well, it may be that uh, the times have changed or they didn't know if they were actually going to have it in use because the controllers are in touch with the uh, organizations, oftentimes the Department of Defense, that are using these uh, restricted or special use airspaces. Also, uh, each controller isn't necessarily going to be familiar. So a controller here in Florida may not know exactly what airspace you'll encounter in Louisiana or how they want to negotiate that. So they're just going to send you in that direction and that next controller is going to work out the specifics of how to get you around that. Interesting, interesting. Uh, so, you know, this, uh, again, let's go back over what we just talked about here. Uh, we talked a little bit about ADIS, but let's go back to what we were talking about, the air traffic control handoff procedures. Remember, there's three steps. There's a transfer of that radar identification. That's something we don't see. Uh, it's commonly called flashing to the next sector. And uh, that happens behind the scenes. Then the next thing they do is transfer communications. And that's when you get that handoff to the next frequency. And then there's the actual physical transfer of control, which we don't see. And then we go across that border. So I think that's pretty cool. So uh, it's, it's really, really interesting stuff. So um, anyway, th- any other questions from the other guys in the, or the other co-hosts here? I really, you know, we've kind of taken up the time so much talking about this. I just want to kind of open this up to discussion. Is there anybody else that might have some questions uh, for Chris on this topic? Tom, do you have a question? And uh, maybe no, as, no, not oh, really. Okay. And uh, well, you know, I was just thinking, uh, you know, what great information this is. And uh, you know, I, I happened to read Chris's article, and I, I'd seen it once before, and it made me pay attention more to uh, how I was being transferred one to the other, both IFR and flying. Um, you know, with VFR flight following, I know that VFR flight following is still, um, you know, uh, based on workload, and I have had it at times where uh, you're flying along VFR, and and the controllers will. Um, I don't know that they forgot about me, but they may not have given you the services that I would have had on an IFR flight plan and, and then get redirected and like, oh, oh yeah, now contact this next controller and, and off you go once you leave an airspace. And uh, it, it's pretty easy to see. I, I actually have an expectation now of the area that I fly in. I kind of have figured out where those boundaries are and know when those handoffs are going to happen. And it's quite interesting sometimes just to kind of pay attention to that. So um, after you guys' discussion tonight, all that makes just a little bit more sense. So good stuff. I was just curious if um, maybe Chris or anyone here had um, some good recommendations of things not to do or um, tips and tricks of things to do that can ensure smoother communication with ATC. Well, I, I, for one, first of all, I'll, I'll jump in there and then I'll let Chris answer this too, is that the, the first thing you need to do, and, and I see this happen often, uh, it's going to sound weird, but make sure you identify yourself. And people are like saying, what? What do you mean identifying yourself? How many times have you heard someone say, hey, I want to go right? Well, well, who are you? There's like a thousand airplanes up there. You'll tell them, hey, I'm Cessna 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. I want to turn left to heading of 310 and ask them what altitude. And when the other thing, too, and this is – uh, really important. And gosh, I tell you what, I'm guilty. Uh, sometimes I mess this up. Is uh, when you respond to anything, make sure 
you tell them your call sign, your end number. One, uh, they'll tell you to turn left to heading a 320. You do not come back and say, left to 320, okay. Well, you may have a distinct voice, and they might let you get away with it for a while, but you really need to come back and say, you know, turn le- left heading at 320, Cessna 12345. You know, make sure you use your call sign and your identifier. Also, remember before when I talked about the writing down a clearance? Uh, make sure you're ready for that and you have a pen and paper. Um, the other thing that, and, and, and to tell you what, someone helped me out with this in the beginning. If you're unfamiliar with an airport or the people are, are talking too fast in your mind, bring paper, pen, I know that's kind of weird these days, and, and write things down. There's also some airplanes, obviously, in, in different headsets, et cetera, that you can play back what the controller just told you. But still, always have a pen and paper. That's, those are the two things that I always tell people. Make sure you, you use your call sign, use your end number, and also have a pen and paper to write these things down. Chris, do you have any other t- topics or any hints and tricks? Uh, I've got a few. Um, I, I agree with you there. Uh, paper makes sense. I know a lot of folks have tablets and they use them with scratch pads. But the problem is you, you might be using your tablet for something else, like looking at an approach chart or checking the weather or trying to find a Pokemon. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you might be busy doing something with the – well, that's, that's the current topic this weekend apparently. So um, – it, it's really helpful just to have old-fashioned paper available for taking notes. Uh, the other thing Carl said, of course, full messages, you know, your call sign and what you want to do. Controllers hate calling five times and asking for five pieces of information individually. So they just want to get you know, everything they need uh, quickly so they go ahead and get you where you're going. Well, that's good. You know, the other thing that I always tell people in, in communications that's really important, uh, it's like an interview. The most important thing is listen. Uh, I think controllers get really frustrated, like we were talking about before, where that was a joke, you know, where he said the the pilots start ignoring ATC, but it happens so often. Uh, Listen up for your call sign and try to respond as quickly as you can. Uh, That's really, really frustrating when they have to call you so many times. And I tell you what, you see here on the airliners all the time. It's like, you know, hey, American 523, this is the fifth call. You know, please descend, maintain flight level 240. And finally, they'll come back and say, oh, I'm sorry, that was the first time I heard you. Well, the first time you heard him because you were talking to the person next to you about the baseball game or something. And I'm not saying that's exactly what happened, but, you know, I'm kind of joking, tongue-in-cheek. But that can happen. You get involved in something else. And uh, so the biggest thing is listening and communication and also responding with your call sign and, and be ready for anything. But uh, by the way, this article that uh, Chris wrote will be available. We'll have a link to it in stuckmygavcast.com. You can find that article. You can download it. Some really good information. Bring it with you. Love to hear comments from you, too, about some of the things that you do. And maybe we'll add those in as uh, some of the tips and tricks in the, in the future episode. Hey, Chris, you know, thanks a lot for being here. Uh, we ran a little bit long on this, but this is some really cool stuff that you've given us. I really appreciate you being here today. Thanks, Carl. Hey, you know, one of the things you mentioned is taking off out of Orlando International Airport. And I tell you, I love flying into big airports with small airplanes. And uh, it really, it's so exciting. I did this once in, oh, it was a, uh, a Piper Tomahawk. I got to fly into Tampa International because one of my students was the manager right there at Tampa. And he let me park at a, a gate for American Airlines. It was kind of cool because all the mechanics came out and said, you're flying in that? Wow. Uh, but what's really interesting is the fact that you know we don't realize that we can fly into any airport in the United States as long as we get a clearance. Uh, there is a couple of them. You have to get a waiver from the FAA to do that. Uh, but you know, it's a, a public-use airport. They'll let you in as long as they t- have the time to let you in. I, I posted something on Facebook a while ago on my own personal Facebook page. You can go check it out uh, on just Facebook slash Carl Valeri. There's a picture I took while I was hanging out in LaGuardia. We were on a delay for a while, and there was a, an airplane landing, another one taxiing by. And you look, and in the corner, it was a Cirrus SR-22 taxiing along. And Got a lot of comments actually on that, uh, and, and this kind of like almost like argument erupted as to you know whether that person should be allowed to fly into a busy airport. Well, uh, there are a lot of times that the airports aren't, really aren't that busy, especially these big airports. Like you'd be a surprise at Chicago. Uh, I've taken off out of Chicago, and I was the only one out there. Uh, it happened to be on January first at five a.m. 
uh, which most people are sleeping at that time. <laughs> but but I, was, I was actually taking off out of there. Our picks of the week. But you know, there's this really cool video, and I know this is, we're going to get into the, the picks of the week next, but I kind of want to talk about that whole topic. And, and Rick, actually, you have this really cool pick of the week. I want you to describe it, but I tell you what, that was awesome, that, that uh, pick of the week of yours and, uh, and the video that uh, the company. Yeah, it's, it's a great video, so the, and we'll have the link uh, in the show notes. It's, um, <clears throat> it's a video that, is on, that I found on the boldmethod.com. Uh, website and uh, though it's not their video i think they just reposted it so it's on I, you know i don't know where it's hosted it looks sort of like youtube but there's no youtube link anyway it is in short a um a really cool video with audio with multiple cameras um of a cessna 172 landing at night at o'hare and i you know so i have I have mostly flown, only flown into into very small private, you know, small GA airports, and and at the same time, I lived in Chicago and flew in and out of O'Hare a lot. So you know, just as a as a person riding in back, um, looking out the window, I certainly knew a lot of the dynamics of of uh, and you know, listening to United when I could listen to United on Channel Nine, um, it was a lot of fun. And but. But what's cool about this is to listen <laughs> to the, you know, they're very, t- just to the professionalism of their, um, of their exchanges with uh, air traffic control. Um, the fact that they um, coordinated with Traycon ahead of that, uh, it was, it was clearly late at night and things were starting to wind down at O'Hare. Although once, when they made the call to O'Hare or to prior to O'Hare, they, the, 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 the controller at that point was not clear that the things would open up for them. But it's really interesting to listen to their, their, their talk back and forth and to watch and listen to their uh, inbound flight and landing at O'Hare. It's a really cool video. You know what, what struck me, Rick, was the fact that, like you said, they were very professional and, and it was almost, they went at the, the one step further and they actually coordinated before they took off yeah. and, and talked with Traycon. But I was, I was really impressed with, with the people that were in the aircraft and, and their phraseology and uh, yeah. their coolness and their ability to land. I will say one thing about the video. I noticed. I, I've watched it a couple times. It was really, it's really cool. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the video, if uh, you have kids, you might want to. I, I, they forgot to bleep something out at the oh, end. Okay. It was. It was quite. Ex- they were very excited <laughs> uh, at the end, and, yeah. and I understand what happened. But what was happening is this really large aircraft was taking off. I tell you what. I would be. I get scared in the plane. Yeah. I fly sometimes flying right behind a seven four. Yeah. Uh, them being behind a seven four in a, in a Cessna one seventy two. That's yeah. That would have been exciting. I also want to you know say uh, some good things about ATC in this because uh, if you listen to this, though they are initially kind of incredulous that this request is being made by a, a Cessna one seventy two, they are very professional and respectful and tolerant of a GA airplane making this call. And, and I, I like hearing that because it just sort of reminds you that, you know, that, that, you know, that there are people out there doing a good job who will make it work for you if they can. And it's, it's really in evidence in the audio on this video. So definitely worth checking out. Yeah. It's our airspace too. And yeah. uh, I think they, they make that evident right there. And well, and, I, and these guys had done their, enough homework to know that they were going to be respectful of not doing it at the wrong time, not calling ahead of time, you know. And so it, it was all done on both sides very well and also multiple cameras. So it's and I think they had somebody in back kind of turning and filming as they, mm-hmm. you know, like it, seemed like it seemed like there was a person who had a handheld that, that allowed them to respond as, a, you know, crossing traffic took off once they landed and stuff. So pretty cool. It was pretty cool. You know, I'd like to hear from the the other hosts as far as uh, flying into the larger airports and, and what their experience is as far as, you know, were you welcomed? I know I've I've uh, had that happen where I say, hey, I'm going to land here. And they're like, uh, okay, um, do you have clearance to park over there? And it's like, yeah, we already arranged it, that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, I was kind of wondering, has anybody else flown into a really large airport? I know Chris gave his story. But I'd uh, love to hear from like Larry or Tom or, or you know Sean. Have you actually, and Vic, have you actually flown into one of these large international airports? And and what has your your experience been? Uh, I'll go, go ahead. It or, well, go go ahead there. Okay, um, this is Tom, and, and uh, yeah, I got to fly into Tampa International once. Um, pretty basically non-eventful. They uh, they they got us right in. They have two separate runways. They have a main runway that they keep all of their. Uh, larger traffic on and there's a there's another north south uh, runway to the eastern side of the airport that they'll allow uh 
um, smaller GA traffic to go into. And, um, you know, they were, they were very accommodating. So, uh, I, I was kind of, uh, a little bit, it, um, I was, I was concerned. I, I, I thought it was going to be a bigger deal than it was. And, and, uh, they were actually very gracious and got us in, um, spent a couple of minutes at a, uh, FBO, picked somebody up and then, and then got right out of there. I think the biggest thing was, um, the uh, immense amount of taxiways. Um, so taxi clearances and things like that were something you really had to pay attention to because uh, it's a, it was a very busy place. But um, my experience was was not eventful. I, I would be um, less um, uh, um, scared to go to a larger airport, you know, if I was in the New York area or Los Angeles or wherever I was trying to get into a bigger airport. I'd, I'd be more likely to try it now because of that experience. <laughs> yeah, Tom, I tell you what, that scares me the most is taxiing around those big airports. There's so many different taxiways. It's like you gotta you got to write everything down, don't you? Yes, you do. And, and you know, I mean, when they start throwing taxiways that have uh, letters and numbers attached to them, you know, like turn right at Whiskey 1 and over to Whiskey 2 and over to Julia, cross Papa, hold short of this runway. I mean, it's just this litany. When I wrote it down and looked at it later, I was like, I don't even know how I repeated that. <laughs> it's like, hey, slow down. Uh, Sean, what's, what's your experience been, Sean? Yeah, Tom, my head would be spinning after that. Um, mine, uh, the biggest I've flown into is Chicago Midway uh, in a Cessna 172. I uh, was working on uh, some commercial stuff at the time, and I was uh, surprised at how, uh, kind of like you said, Tom, uneventful it was. Uh, and it was gorgeous. The, the biggest thing that happened with me was they switched my uh, the runway I was cleared to land on, but it wasn't crazy short final or anything. It just took a little bit of adjustment. And looking out at the uh, the big Chicago skyline uh, off in the distance was uh, was just gorgeous. Uh, I'd, uh, I'd be happy to fly up there again anytime. <laughs> That'd be really cool. I know, Vic, you had mentioned that you uh, try to avoid some of these larger airports. Why Why is that? Um, there's several reasons. Uh, I usually try to find um, a smaller airport. First of all, smaller airports have so much character, and you get to meet other GA pilots out there. I feel like if you go into a bigger place, you're at a very big FBO where they're just shuffling people in and out. And there's not other pilots that you usually get to meet and socialize with. Um, a lot of it's like charter traffic. And um, these type of places are usually really expensive. I know, um, you know, landing in Baltimore was like $60 just to go there and park and drop someone off. And so the, the prices just add up. And when you get to think of it and look at all the smaller public use airports there are in the United States, Usually you can find a nice smaller airport that's closer to your destination than using one of the major airports. Uh, when I go back home, I, I don't fly into Detroit Metro. I fly into Pontiac International because it's, you know, a half hour closer to home and it's that nice um, smaller airport feel. And that makes sense. I mean, we, you know, when, when we're out there, that's why we fly GA. I mean, it's you're not hassled with the the fees. You know, you're right near where you want to be. It's usually around the city. You know, sometimes the airport may be in the spot you want to be in, the international airport. But you know, those smaller airports, the person can get in, they can pick you up, really close to airplane sometimes, and then you're on your way. So I think that's really cool. I think there's some discussion as to whether we should be able to. Of course, we should be able to fly at some of these bigger airports. But uh, don't expect to always be allowed in. Uh, they have to make sure, uh, especially when they have metering into the airport, you may have to ask for a slot. I know uh, in Oshkosh, they, they're going to be quite busy flying in there. We'll talk a little bit about that with Larry once we get to the, his pick of the week. But uh, that's a really, really important thing to keep in mind. You may not get a slot into that airport till hours and hours later. But uh, anyway, you know, we moved into our picks of the week. I know, hey, Rick, thanks for that pick of the week. That's a really good little topic there, too, to talk about. So yeah, I really cool. appreciate that. Awesome video. I hope everybody watches it. Uh, but let's move into our picks of the week. We're running out a, a little bit long here. So, uh, But the first person I want to talk to is, is Victoria has this really cool pick of the week. And I think it's uh, awesome. Uh, and the website, I looked at it. It's really cool. So, Victoria, what is your pick of the week? Well, um, I've been through a lot of major life changes lately, as some people might have noticed through social media or my um, blog at thepixiepilot.com. I won't go into it here, but you can check out my um, new blog. It's called Confidence to Fly. And it goes really in-depth about life and life changes and building confidence and believing in yourself throughout it. And it's a little different from my other blog where I just 
posted about my writing, uh, my flying adventures. Uh, this one, you know, it's kind of like a mix of self-help with an aviation twist to it. And I really kind of spilled my guts out there and have been getting uh, a good response from the people I've showed it to so far. So feel free to check it out and uh, let me know your thoughts. Awesome stuff. And again, the website is? It's confidence to fly and it's dot blogspot.com. I don't have the uh, official URL for it yet. But. Awesome. Well, well, I'd love everybody to go out there and check it out. It's a great story. Uh, inspirational, too. Uh, and uh, gets, uh, kept, it, it actually uh, got me smiling. It really did. It was kind of oh, good. Yeah. So that that was that was. Uh, I think I related to something in in there that you know struck, and I'm sure other people here listening, it'll happen with them too. Uh, you're gonna say, "Hey, wait a minute, that's that's me." You know, that's I I feel the same way, and hey, I'm not alone. Uh, so that's that's kind of cool. I like that. Really good job on that. And I want to see more. I can't wait to see more. So confidence, <laughs> confidence to fly Awesome. Hey, Sean, what what uh, what was your pick of the week, Sean? I think yours was pretty cool, too. Yeah, mine this week is one that I look forward to every year for the past two or three. I can't remember how long they've been doing this, but uh, every year, uh, for the past couple of years, I suppose, Boeing brings their uh, Dreamliner to Farnborough, the, uh, the air show over in the U.K., and they do a uh, video of their practice flight from all different angles. They got a chase plane. They got planes mounted inside the airplane. <laughs> And it's doing maneuvers that you, I mean, it's like you're watching Fat Albert at a Blue Angels air show. It's <laughs> unbelievable the routine that they put this this airliner through. And the, the cinematography is just absolutely gorgeous. Um, you can find this on, I, I found that Boeing doesn't seem to have a company Facebook page. There's the Boeing store, uh, which is where the video was posted. And I think Boeing careers, but there's not just a Boeing Facebook page. So the Boeing store is where the uh, the video itself is posted, and it's uh, just about uh, two minutes long, I think, of just pure aviation goodness. So go check that out. Uh, beautiful cinematography, nice music to go along with it, and uh, just escape for a couple of minutes there. Yeah, that that was a blast to watch, and and I kind of I wanted you to do yours because I want to follow up with with my pick of the week is very similar. Uh, Boeing, hundred years old, right? And uh, they've been around for 100 years, 100-year anniversary. What was really interesting, and I don't normally put videos on my Facebook page, but I, I really love sharing this. And uh, my pick of the week actually is my Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash Carl Valeri. I have some cool pictures of when uh, I was with the kids visiting uh, the Airbus A320 simulator, that type of thing. And that was a lot of fun. So check those out. But I posted this video of Airbus and their response to Boeing announcing their 100th anniversary. What a class act, Airbus. An incredible video. I was, on, I was on the side of my seat waiting for that last minute to hear what you were going to say. And Airbus, you did a great job. Really classy. I'm not going to give it away, but please watch the whole video. I was absolutely smiling at the end. My wife and I watched it a couple times. So that, that was Really cool. Didn't expect it. Uh, it was like, bam, oh, my gosh. Really good job, Airbus, on that. So check it out on my Facebook page. I probably have a link somewhere else, but uh, just go there and, and look at that video. I really, really like that a lot, and I think you'll enjoy it too. Anyway, so that, that was kind of, kind of a cool follow-up to that. But, uh, Tom, what, what is your pick of the week? Yeah, I came up with a pick of the week. Um, it's um – LuisMonterio.com, and what this thing is, it's a VOR simulator. And uh, you know, I, I I give this uh, as a suggestion to students because you know I, I realize everybody wants to fly with a GPS, and and I do too. I fly with a tablet, and it's great for situational awareness. But you know, just wrapping your head around a VOR, and and because we still need to learn it, and and we're expected to know how to use it for our check rides, um, this helped me. It helped me a bunch just to kind of put it in perspective of what's going on and how you're situated and how you're tuning in and what how your heading matters. And, and this thing will actually let you put yourself at an altitude. So it gives you a vertical navigation view, a horizontal navigation view, all of your instruments. You can set it up in all sorts of different situations. It's spelled out pretty um, easily across the page. Um, 
on how to use this thing. It doesn't take very long at all to learn how to use it and, and uh, really lets you wrap your head around um, that type of navigation. And, and you can do it for all sorts of things. You can do it for approaches. You can do it um, just for tracking VORs and, and, and what it is you're looking at. So uh, I would encourage people to go out and look at this thing if, if that's uh, the point of your training where you're at and, and you're having trouble with it. Interesting. Great. And we'll have that link at stuckmikeavcast.com uh, to that. And oh, by the way, you can get all the links to all the other picks of the week at stuckmikeavcast.com. Picks of the week. We have bunches and bunches of them out there. Uh, now, last but not least, uh, I know from our friends over in Oshkosh, Larry, you still out there with Jim G? Yes, I'm still sitting here at Artie and Ed's where there's a train just going by. Uh, <laughs> so that's, that's the background noise there. Uh, we, we were Jim and I were here talking, and uh, both he and I have a pick of the week, so I'm going to let him go first. Awesome, Jim. What's your pick of the week? Carl, this is for you to try to incentivize you to come out to AirVenture, because oh. you said it's possible. Uh, and there, there's going to be a really cool forum presentation on Tuesday morning uh, talking about maintenance records for owners and pilots. And uh, the presenter is yours truly. So it's a little bit of self-promotion. I'm doing a forum presentation Tuesday morning on maintenance records for owners and pilots. And the motivation for this forum forum's presentation is that uh, during our flight training, we learned that we have to have records. We learned that we have to have these annual inspections and some other things. But it we don't really go into it in detail. It's not a key part of pilot training in terms of flying the airplane and knowing the, the FARs. But so many pilots are owners or become owners. And as you know, or as we should know, the owners are responsible for the maintenance records of the airplane, not the mechanic, the owner. And I thought I would delve into a little bit of detail in what's in the records, how an owner can put things in the records to keep track of stuff, how an owner can be educated as to what to look for in his aircraft's records. And also what a pilot, a pilot, a non-owner, like a renter pilot, should look for in aircraft records. And I thought I could, uh, I'm going to distill that down to, uh, to about an hour and uh, hopefully not put people to sleep. But that's Tuesday morning at AirVenture. So come on down. And I'm sure that uh, it'll be a great discussion. By the way, if you're going to Oshkosh, if you're going to AirVenture, uh, trying to find these forums, uh, the, the best way to do that is in, in the, uh, the guide that they have. But you can also find that out online, too. And I think yeah. they also have a, a way to find that when you're there. Do you know where they can find out the forums and, and the times? Yeah, the forum, there is a schedule of the, the forum schedule. There you go. Just went online two days ago. So if you go to the EAA AirVenture website and find your way to forums, you can it'll show you the schedule of everything. That's a pretty long schedule. So you might want to search for mine. You might want to search for maintenance and find all the stuff that has to do with maintenance. So there is a search button and a search bar, and it works pretty well. There will be a program guide distributed at every admission point, whether you get your wristband at the main gate or you come in through the campground or you fly in. You'll always get a program guide. Everybody gets a program guide. They're all over the field. So website, program guide, can't miss it. And uh, oh, Go ahead, Carl. I was going to say you'll send us that link, and we'll have that at stuckmikeavcast.com so yep. they can find that. I, I appreciate that. No problem. We'll do it. Awesome. All right. And then um, for mine, you know, I, I was thinking about the wonderful uh, picks of the week I could have, including Artie and Ed's drive-in here. Uh, or the whole Oshkosh uh, air show and experience, but but one that I think I will uh, put out there uh, is Camp Scholar, um, because we've got somewhere in the neighborhood of you know many tens of thousands of people camping together, um, and it really is an amazing opportunity to meet new people, to you know find people who uh, may be building the same aircraft you're building, or flying the same antique that you or you know classic that you fly, or vintage aircraft that you fly, um, or you know whatever it is. And uh, learn about some, you know, some new airports or, or whatnot. And um, uh, it's it's just the kind of place that most people who come to the show at Oshkosh completely miss because they come in in the morning and they watch the airplanes fly and they watch the air show or whatever, and then they leave uh, after the air show. And from from my experience, the most fun, the the thing that keeps me coming back year after year after year, and I've been coming here since 1979, is um, the, all the stuff that happens after the show, because that's when I get to get together with my friends and find out what they did today and, you know, what little piece of aviation uh, gadgetry they can't live without that they picked up or, you know, whatever, uh, what they learned in a forum, you know, like Jim's. And um, 
and Camp Scholar is really the place where so much of that happens. So if anyone's out there thinking about coming to Oshkosh, not sure if they can get a hotel or not, if you're at all into camping, um, you know, come on out to Camp Scholar, uh, look us up. We're, we're at uh, uh, Lindbergh and Forest Home are the two main cross streets where we're camping, and, and anybody out there is sure welcome to stop by and say hello and, uh, you know, maybe sit around by the fire and share a few stories. You can get to the Camp Scholar uh, information from the EAA website, uh, and they've got a link, I think, for the Air Venture show, and then it's right off of that. Awesome. Hey, you know, since you were doing this uh, from your location, uh, can you shout out the, uh, say, the website of where you are right now or Facebook page? We're at Artie and Ed's driving on. I don't yeah. know their. I don't know their. <laughs> no, they gotta have a Facebook page. Artie and Ed's. Yeah, you know it's yeah. interesting. I didn't. I didn't know Camp Bacon had a Facebook page, and I I looked it up there. So we'll look that up if we can get a link to them because it's a it's a really cool spot. Larry, man, I just and, and Jim G, I can't wait to hopefully get out there. I'm I'm working something where uh, I actually might be able to have it related to work possibly and and also of course with the stuck mike avcast we'll have people out there of course larry will be out there make sure you stop by and talk to him he's got his microphone and uh, we'd love to hear from you we'll have a couple of interviews by the way uh from air venture uh but you know there's there's lots of cool stuff going on it's huge it's a great event it's uh, it's a lot of fun and i wish i was part of it right now uh, I unfortunately my schedule didn't work out so well, so I might just be there for a day or two. But uh, I I am just trying as hard as I can to get up there. Hopefully it'll be on a, a very fast airplane. If not, I might be connecting through a bunch of cities just to make it out there. And I hope to see everybody at Air Venture. It's it's uh, one of the one of the most amazing aviation events and aviation happiness in the world. It's uh, something I know people look forward to all year long. And uh, Larry, of course, being a part of that, it's uh, part of his life up there. It's uh, part of everybody's life, I think, because uh, we love aviation so much. So much you can learn, so many cool things you can see. The After Landing Checklist. Well, uh, Chris Pazala, thanks for being here this evening and, and doing that discussion on uh, air traffic control handoff procedures. I know they can find you at 3-Point Aviation, the number 3-Point Aviation. Also at expertaviator.com slash holding. He has the video there on uh, advanced holding patterns. And by the way, if you uh, there is that summer discount of 50%. Make sure you, you go get that if you want to actually watch the rest of that video. The first one's free, uh, so check it out at expertaviator.com slash holding. So again, thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody for being here. I can't wait to hear back from the people from Oshkosh. Hopefully I will see you at Air Venture and uh, be flying in. There's some great photos we're going to have on the Facebook page. Uh, posted out there by the people that are there and also our friends. Make sure you visit us and make sure you go to stuckmygavcast.com and link on some of the pictures there. We'll have some cool video, cool audio coming right from Air Adventure. Well, folks, this has been great having you here. I hope you've learned something. And don't forget to fly safe. We'll talk to you next episode. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Avcast is an aviation podcast and a Valeri Aviation Corporation production.